0: It's 2023, and the United States is in the middle of the worst attack on LGBTQ rights since the McCarthy winch hunts of the 1950s. Ironically, these bozos want to take us back to that decade and strip away our rights. So today I chose a film from a classic alt queer director who defined experimental independent film in the 80s and 90s, helped launch Tilda Swinton's career, battled AIDS, and if he were alive today, would be leading the battle cry to get us off our phones and take back our country. This pride is all about the riot. We're still here. We're still queer. Let's do this. Welcome. You're listening to Real Charlie Speaks an LGBTQ podcast spinoff of the film and television review blog, Real Charlie, looking at movies and TV from a gay male perspective since 2009. I'm your host, Philip Barr. Each month, I select a classic queer film, television series, or creator. I talk about how the subject spoke to me when I first discovered it years ago and how it stood the test of time. Join me now as we begin another episode adventure. Greetings. Today is June 18th, 2023, and we are going to be discussing Derek Jarman's amazing 1991 film, Edward II. Before we get into Edward II, I just want to tell you a little bit about Derek Jarman. Uh, Derek Jarman is one of the most incredible filmmakers who ever lived uh, he really defined independent and experimental films in the 1980s and 1990s. Jarman uh, grew up and uh, spent his life in England. He was born in 1942. He died of AIDS in 1994, which made him 52 years old when he died. From 1976 until 1993, he produced an amazing Collection of films from his first film, Sebastian to Jubilee to The Tempest, to Caravaggio, to The Last of England, War Requiem, then in 91, Edward II, which we'll be discussing today, Wittgenstein, Blue, which is the very last film that he did. At the end of this, I'm going to just read a couple of excerpts from some of my reviews of uh, the films that I've that I've watched so far from Jarman because each one is so unique and they really define, in my mind, uh, the idea of independent film and how important it is to have political activism in film as well. You know, I talk a lot about my favorite film directors and I usually say that Hitchcock is my all-time favorite film director and Pedro Almodovar is my favorite living director. But I have to say that, you know, having just watched Edward II to prepare for this podcast, thinking a lot about Jarman, I really have to put Jarman up there. And I have to say that it's sort of a trifecta of these three men. When I wrote the review for Jarman's film, The Garden, I spoke to that exact point. And I just want to read this to you because this is, these were my feelings back then, and they really ring true today as well. Of my three most influential film directors, Alfred Hitchcock taught me that beauty, complexity, and suspense can have a place in a mass-marketed film. Pedro Almodovar taught me the importance of family, absurdity in story, and the strength of female-centric film. And Derek Jarman taught me the power of independent film and political activism, of women's independence, and the power of gay male sexuality That is male intimacy, love, touch, kissing, open expression of emotion and commitment can create the most controversial and powerful statements in art and in life. That intimacy continues to be the strongest tool gay men can use to redefine masculinity and help overcome the patriarchy. So those were some of my feelings, you know, way back when, when I watched The Garden. Um, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but it was sometime in the last 15 years while I was doing the podcast podcast. So let's talk a little bit about um, Edward II, because that's the film that we've come here today to discuss. From Wikipedia, um, I'm just going to read the, uh, just a little quick blurb about the play itself. The troublesome reign and lamentable death of Edward II, King of England, with the tragical fall of Proud Mortimer, also known as Edward II or Edward II, is a Renaissance or early modern period play written by Christopher Morrow and published posthumously in 1593. It's one of the earliest English history plays and focuses on the relationship between King Edward II of England and Piers Gaveston and Edward's murder on the orders of Roger Mortimer. So, Marlowe wrote this play way back in 1593 and one of the things that was really interesting about this film is that it's the first and only film that Jarman did that didn't have a story written by him and a script written by him, etc. So I have uh, I have just a clip here from my, or just a, a bit from my own review of Edward II way back when um, on my blog, Real Charlie. So Edward II is based on the Christopher Marlowe play. It's pro-queer, in-your-face, political, romantic tragedy of epic proportions. Edward played by Stephen Waddington finds his reign questioned when he brings his love Gaveston played by Andrew Tiernan to the court. The lovers face hatred from the queen played by Tilda Swinton, the head of the military played by Nigel Terry, and many of his father's inner circle. It's high drama mixed with early 90s politics. Before we actually jump into Edward, I'm going to I just want to mention really my hesitancy towards um, choosing this film, not because I don't love this film. I mean, as you can tell so far, I absolutely adore adore Jarman, and I love all of his films. I haven't seen all of them yet, but all the ones I've seen so far, I've absolutely loved. Given them a five out of five, etc. I know that the time period that we're living in right now, which I mentioned in the teaser at the very beginning, we're living in a very dark time. And so part of me... (laughs) wanted to do best in show for Pride Month uh, in here in 2023. Because I thought, do I really want to keep bringing the, mo- the mood down? Or do I want to try to temper the mood? And finally, I realized that no, this film is exactly what we need to see this month and this year, because it mirrors everything that was going on during the AIDS crisis, with gay rights, LGBTQ rights, and AIDS rights, it mirrors all of that that's going on today, which is the attack on the LGBT community, in particular the trans community, but really everyone, because um, the bills that are in Florida and all the other states about Don't Say Gay are about gender and sexuality. As I mentioned, Edward II is based on a play by Christopher Marlowe. The opening scene of the film is just Edward, and then the credits roll, and then the second opening scene is... Is with Edward and an assistant in his bedroom. And as they speak, a male couple behind them is complete they're completely naked and they're in the throes of making love. Not like hardcore making love, but very gentle, tender love. But they are literally there naked on top of each other, kissing, stroking, touching, etc. It's really interesting because to me it sets the tone for the entire rest of the film, which is that we are not gonna play it safe. We are not going to be polite. We are not going to be anything other than our true, authentic selves. And these like unknown lovers, which they end up being sailors that the king has brought in, I don't know for his entertainment or whatever, but by the time we see this in the very opening scene, um, he really is not even paying attention to them. He's speaking to his assistant, and they are in the background. But it's the four of them in this shot, and it's very... Um, It's just really powerful. So that's the very first scene. And then finally, in the third scene, Gaveston appears. Um, Gaveston is obviously Edward's love. Um, He's been exiled by Edward's father. And now that Edward's father is dead and Edward is taking over the throne as Edward II, he brings his Gaveston back home to him. So he immediately treats Gaveston like an equal. And then they kiss. Um, and the kiss is very gentle, it's very tender, but it's also very passionate. Um, and you can you can feel the electricity between them. Edward goes as far as allowing Gaveston to actually sit on his throne because he wants to share his whole life with Gaveston equally. So next up, they have a confrontation with the bishop who was responsible for exiling Gaveston. So that starts to already get sort of... Um, Prickly and threatening, and so immediately within the film, you realize that this is going to be a film not just of genre of drama, but it's going to be a film of real like combativeness and battles and a war between these two factions. Also, keep in mind that the play is written in that from that time period. So, I felt like the language in the film actually added to the experimental nature of the film because. Rather than relying on the story and the language in the film, so much of it I, I have trouble understanding. So, um, without sitting down and actually reading through it and et cetera. So, what you end up doing is you rely more on the imagery within the scene, you rely on the emotion that the actors are producing between each other, whether it's anger, whether it's love, whether it's intimacy, whether it's frustration. And also the intuition that you have from seeing all these parts of the film together, the language um, really starts to sort of soften and you just sort of go with the flow of the of the film, which is absolutely gorgeous. And I, I really only think someone like Jarman could really tackle this in the way that he did. And create a beautiful, beautiful film. One of the th- one of the reasons why I chose this film um, for Pride Month um, and wanted to honor Jarman is because a lot of his other films are much more experimental. And I say that in a very good way. I've loved all the films that I've seen of his, but this one I feel like, even with the language, I feel like it's the most accessible film. If you think about Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, it has a feel to that. Obviously, they're completely different films. Jarman's was completely independent. Independent. Um, and there was a lot of anger, and well, there was a lot of anger in uh, in Romeo and Juliet as well. But uh, but yeah, there's a there's there's a similarity between the films where it's a very modern take on um, on a play from a very very long time ago with language that a lot of a lot of people no longer can really understand 100%. Also, the entire film has a very homoerotic nature to it. Um, And the imagery, as I said, there's some very modern imagery. So there's a combination of sort of old world and then modern imagery. And the set design is extremely stark. It's literally just like, um, like walls and floors and hallways that are completely concrete and completely stark there's a reason behind that the reason is that so much of the funding got pulled at the very last minute and jarman just said i don't." to the producers who cares like we'll figure it out and then jarman came up with this idea of having this extremely stark set and then there just might be one thing in in the scene like there might be the throne as the decoration or there might be um a bed as the decoration, but everything else is completely stark, like concrete, really harsh, very eighties to me. I mean, this was this was, the film was made in nineteen ninety one. It was released in nineteen ninety one, but it has a very sort of late eighties feel to it. Edward ends up giving Gaveston several titles in a ceremony, um, which his brother sees. Um, Edward has a brother, and his brother wonders um, why his his nephew, which is which is which is Edward's son, is not given titles as well. So already, again, there's like all of these different factions. There's the priest, um, and then there's the, um, the brother, and it keeps going on and on. It gets very complicated with all the different people involved. So there's rumblings from other members of the Corps. As I mentioned, there's the brother, there's the priest, and then, of course, the queen shows up, the queen being played by Tilda Swinton, And the military, of course, disagreeing with Gavison's place in the monarchy. So Tilda Swinton, just to sort of back up for just a second, was uh, she played the queen. She was in almost every Jarman film. She really was his muse. And of course, um, his films, I really feel like laid the groundwork for her to kind of catapult to the level of stardom that she's and success that she's had with her career. And she talks about that all the time as well. I do want to say at this point that I was, I had a moment very early on in the film where I thought to myself, oh, You know, when I was when I saw this when I was younger when it first came out thirty years ago, I thought I remember thinking to myself, like this is the most elegant and sophisticated film I have ever seen. Because it wasn't an American film, because it was an indie film from the UK, so it still had English as its language, but it was, you know, it was the English from that time period. So it was there was that sort of sophistication to it. But then of course the way that Jarman directed and produced this, it just is is so gorgeous. And literally 30 years later, I was still sitting there thinking the same thing. I mean, they don't make films like this. Um, There's all sorts of scenes going on throughout the film. There's a group of people who represent the public who's really disgusted with what Edward is doing. There's really sort of bizarre moments where someone comes through with a horn and hound dogs as if they're going off to a hunt. There's a scene where Edward is with Gaveston and they're exercising with a group of men and the mob sort of shows up and starts, you know, yelling at Edward, but Edward keeps exercising. There's also an incredible scene with Gaveston, um, approaching the queen and he starts whispering things into her ear. Um, and there's a moment or two where you start to think, is he going to seduce her for real? Um, and, she also misreads these signals and she starts to turn to him to kiss to him to kiss him and then he starts laughing at her so very very powerful moments in this film from one scene to the next there's no time to really um, take a breath it's just um, a lot of really really incredibly um, intense and the of course a lot of the dialogue is difficult to understand because of when it was written but the scenes because they are so modern again that sort of nod to romeo and juliet um, it really does help modern audiences understand the play a lot more by seeing um, things that we would see in modern day life so just kudos to everybody involved the set designers the um oh but god the costume people i mean tilda swinton's costumes were unbelievable and they had no budget i have no idea how that happened there must have been somebody involved in the um you know in the cast um you know someone who was involved in co- that was the costumer that just said hey you know give me some money and i will go buy and make everything because her gowns and her jewelry and everything was just completely spot on there is um Another scene that again, because it 's experimental and independent um, it's a it 's a very um, unique scene that you wouldn't see anywhere there's a scene of edward's son he's roaming through the corridors and he's it 's at night it 's dark he 's got a flashlight, and he comes upon a group of naked men who are training um, they're doing like military exercises, so there's nothing sexual about it at all. Um, But it's just an interesting sort of moment where you're kind of like, now what's going on? And then later on in the film, there's two more moments like that. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. So again, um, the independent and especially the experimental parts of this film, um, it, it, it forces you as a viewer to really sort of sit back and say okay I may not have answers at this point in the film I may not have answers about this scene but let me just like put that aside and keep moving with the film and let's see where this is all going because there's a purpose and a point to everything that Jarman does and it all sort of flows together really really elegantly. The mob presents Edward with a signed document at this point in the film saying that Gavison has to be exiled again. Mortimer forces Edward to sign the exile document. The next scene is probably one of the most phenomenal scenes I've seen in any film during that this period of time during the 1980s and early 1990s. Edward and Gaveston are in this extremely stark room, as every room is in the in in uh, it's all the sets are in the movie, um, and because he's been exiled again, they are having to say goodbye to each other. So. They are in long pajamas, well, I call them long pajamas, they're long sleeve, long pants, both of them are in pajamas, and they are dancing to this song, which very early on we realized that it's Annie Lennox singing Cole Porters every time we say goodbye, I, I got I I remember sobbing through this scene 30 years ago, and I got to tell you that this scene is absolutely seamless. It's gorgeous. It's brilliant. It brings tears to your eyes when you see it. It's just so well choreographed and so well crafted. And Annie shows up. She actually is on camera for the second half of the song. Um, the first half of the song is the, just the two of them dancing together, um, and it's just heartbreaking and absolutely beautiful um, this song was actually just to give you a little bit of backstory. There were a bunch of albums that came out during this time period that were benefit albums for AIDS organizations, and one of them was called. Red, uh, and this series of albums was called Red Hot. So they had a first album, which I can't remember. I think it may have just been pop songs, but then they did like Red Hot and Blue, Red Hot and Country, Red Hot and Punk. Um, so this one was a Col- all Cole Porter songs. Um, and it was just uh, they they picked this song by Annie Lennox, and it was absolutely perfect for the um, for the film. So the men are dancing together; um, it's heart wrenching, and of course, this is an absolute perfect metaphor for the loss that everyone's experiencing from AIDS. So it really did affect me so deeply at the time. I I am sure that I was thinking not just of the characters in the film, but of everyone that we had lost because saying goodbye to all these beautiful young men um, during this time period was just absolutely crushing for so many people. I feel like this scene alone could cement Jarman's place in film history, except that I've seen a lot of other Jarman films, and I know that this this scene was not an isolated incident. So it's a clear example of the mastery of his craft of filmmaking, and really, again, reminds us of what a loss Um, having him only here until he was 52 years old is just an absolute travesty. So we, the, film, the scene ends, we take a breath, and then Gaveston's departure is met, met with all of these elderly priests that are on either side. He's walking down one of the stark corridors. He's looking really disheveled, he's dirty, um, and he's distraught. And the priests are lined up on either side of him, and they're literally spitting at him as he's walking down the thing. It's, um, it's really, really jarring. Um, And obviously, the film is taking a very dark turn at this point. Um, The king is in agony. He's lost. He's alone. He then confronts the queen while their son watch. And he says to her that he's never going to, you know, he's never going to reconcile with her. He hates her. And she's just going to be alone for the rest of their life. And then the film in the next scene takes another wicked turn As the mob decides, like almost, it's sort of it's it's set up like a um, like a board of trustees meeting for a big corporation. So the mob decides that they are going to actually invite Gaveston back and take away the exile because they want someone to kill him so that Edward won't be able to blame the country for Gaveston being taken away from him because they can just blame. The the murder on some one person and not on the crowd, and this of course was completely orchestrated by Tilda Swinton's character, Queen Isabella, and of course Mortimer, because they're in cahoots together, um, who was head of military operations. So she goes and um, after. Um, after this is all done, and it's, a, and it's a done deal, she goes to Edward, she tells him that Gaveston is coming back, she asks for a reconciliation, and Edward agrees and is very sensitive to her and intimate with her, and she feels like she's getting him back. But of course, that's not what's going to happen, because as soon as Gaveston comes back, it's the Edward and Gaveston show 100% of the time. So the reunion is one sort of upbeat fun moment of the film. Um it's uh they 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 run towards each other and then there is um, again, it's just the two of them in a room with four other women. There's four women dressed in red ball gowns, and they're a string quartet. And so they're playing the music. And it's kind of like a slapstick dance from the 1920s. It's sort of like Roaring Twenties. They're dancing faster. They're dancing goofier. And it's such a sweet, sweet reunion. Um, and so then we flash over to Isabella and Mortimer and they consummate their relationship. So she's given up on Edward at this point And she, not only is her allegiance with Mortimer, but her sexuality is there with him as well. Mortimer at, in another scene um stabs gaviston not really to kill him it's sort of more it was more it seemed to me like it was happening more it was very impulsive on his part and um and everybody was horrified because they didn't want someone that well known and someone that high up to actually do the killing so he doesn't really kill gaviston it's a it's a wound um, which can be healed and at this point um edward's brother actually tries to have Gaveston exiled once again, and he decides that he's going to line himself with Isabella and Mortimer because he doesn't think it's fair that Gaveston is getting this much attention plus all the gifts and all the property and the titles and all of this. There's another scene. Remember that scene that I said earlier with Edward's son, which I thought was kind of an odd scene and wasn't really sure where that was going. So there's another scene with Edward's son in the dark with his flashlight, and this time he comes upon a huge animal carcass that's been skinned. And obviously now we're realizing that this is the antithesis Of the very alive army of men that were exercising earlier, the naked bodies contrasting really starkly with the skinned carcass. And obviously the skinned carcass, to me, was representative of um, not just of Gaveston being exiled again and Edward's brother um, getting into cahoots with Isabella and Mortimer, but he was really, um, it's really about their relationship. The skinned carcass is really about like there's, it's dead, it's been murdered and there's nothing left of their relationship. So the military police have now captured Gaviston. They're torturing him and they eventually kill him. Uh, There's one young, one young uh, military police that kills him. And Edward is left with Gaviston's assistant. So Gaviston's assistant for the rest of the film Helps Edward out and is really becomes his sort of right hand man. So, um, Edward, he helps Edward realize more than anything that he's been too kind to all these people and too forgiving and he hasn't been harsh enough. So, he now claims that he's going to declare war on them. Uh, the inevitable confrontation happens between the military police and Edward's loyalists. And this is a fascinating scene because, again, it's the combination of sort of old world and modern day. So we had a group in um, in the U.S. called Act Up during the AIDS crisis. And in the U.K., there was a group called Outrage, which was exactly the same thing. They were a um, political action um, group that um, performed actions in public um, to try to— create awareness and help um, move along assistance for people with HIV and AIDS. So, um, so outrage, the, the members of outrage are actually in this scene. Jarman brings them into the scene. So they're Edwards loyalists, but all of their signs and their um, costuming is all modern day. So it all says like, you know, AIDS rights and um, AIDS, you know, AIDS medication and, um, you know, we're not, we're not going back in the closet and um, you know, lesbian and gay, um, freedom and all this stuff. So it's phenomenal because it's this confrontation with the police who are also dressed in modern gear with huge riot shields, helmets, um, and billy clubs, and this other group. So they're battling it out. At the same time, Edward and Gaveston's assistant discover who the actual murderer is, and here's part three of that story with um, with the young with with Ed- Edward's son. So what they do is they trust him up over the carcass, that animal carcass that Edward's son found. So um, so the police, uh, the police person, the, the police, young policeman who was the actual person that murdered Gaveston, they figure out who that is and then they trust him up. So, um, and then uh, Edward obviously kills him. So the next scene is a perfect example, of what I thought of set design and costume. It really mirrors Jarman's excellent. There's several moments throughout this whole, more than several. There's many moments throughout where the set design is just absolutely gorgeous. But this one in particular is really intense. It's Tilda Swinton dressed in high fashion as the queen. Her son is dressed up like a vigilante with a black ski mask on and a fake gun. And they're literally standing next to an artificial Christmas tree, very artificial Christmas tree on this otherwise really stark set. Um, and she's, of course, speaking and he speaks a little bit as well. So it's just like, again, it's just the, the set design and the costumes just take your breath away and really move that that story forward when you may be struggling with some of the text. Um, Edward and Gaviston's assistant are captured by the police. There's another insanely beautiful scene with Isabella and Mortimer. They're in bed together. Isabella has a towel wrapped around her head. She's got a blue facial mask on. And Mortimer is in a red satin robe reading a book about Saddam Hussein. I mean, I had to look up the title of the book, but it's absolutely gorgeous and genius. Um, Again, the set and the costumes are all contributing to understanding that text, which can be a little bit difficult to understand, especially for someone like me. The soldier who killed Gaveston brings Edward a lock of Isabella's hair, and then she has instructed him to kill Edward as well. So they kill Edward in the absolute most heinous of ways and you do don't you don't see it, but you see it. you understand what's happening. But then we realize that it was a dream or was it a dream? Um, maybe it was a dream, maybe it wasn't a dream or maybe just the way he was murdered wasn't really in the dream wasn't really the way he was murdered. But then his son ends up on the throne. Um, so you know that Edward has been murdered because his son is now taken over the throne, even though he's like eight years old or something like that. And Isabella and Mortimer are imprisoned and the son is in drag, not full drag, but he's in like, uh, women's shoes, really big oversized women's shoes, earrings. And I think eye makeup, and his hair is brushed back. So it's, it was fascinating to me watching this right now, because what are we doing 30 years f- in the future from this film being released? We're, we're, we're freaking out over the fact that children are being exposed to drag queens. I mean, come on, give me a break. Um, so the final scene is the, it brings back the outraged folks. It's completely silenced. They're all in the middle of protesting, but they're all frozen and they're all silent. While Edward's voice um, speaks about his death and it feeds us into a black screen as his voice finishes the statement. And that's the end of the movie. You know, I usually am super, super, super um, enthusiastic about the movies I chose. And obviously, you can tell from the the way that I'm talking tonight and what I'm saying that I'm also extremely excited about bringing um, Derek Jarman and and particularly Edward II to um, Real Charlie Speaks. But I will have to tell you that I think that one of the big differences between how I felt when I was younger and how I feel now is that as I've gotten older... Um, And definitely at this stage in my life, I really do not enjoy Shakespearean language. I don't want to read it. I don't want to see a play. So my tolerance for that has really really waned over the years. But I will tell you that if this weren't a Jarman film, I probably would not want to revisit it. However, saying that, watching this film, I do believe that The language and the fact that he took an actual play, a Marlowe play, and adapted it to film with his own very specific signature on this is just incredible. And I do think that the language itself helps to heighten the film and adds to the mystery and the beauty and the elegance of the film. So, you know. I, I, I say kudos on all parts here. Yeah, I'm a little more crankier now that I'm older, but I sat through that film with today without any issue at all. And I'm absolutely, I love it. I'm so happy I've got the Blu-ray for it. Um, I love so many of his films. Um, and Edward II really is the perfect film to watch for this year. Unfortunately, I wish it weren't. I wish some silly, happy film would be the perfect film to watch this year. But if you want to get um, an understanding of... Um, how things were 30 years ago through the eyes of a very remarkable filmmaker on top of a beautiful play and his interpretation of that. Edward II is absolutely a perfect film for this time period in 2023. So that said, I told you I would love to wrap up at the very end talking a little bit about some of the other Films that I've seen. I'm just going to read one or two short things about each of these films. So I've already talked about The Garden, which was um, a film that I discussed uh, the three di- my three different favorite directors, and I talked about it in the very beginning of that. So let me just read a uh, a quick blurb about um, The Garden. So Derek Jarman blends an eclectic combination of experimental film, Christian iconography, gay male relationships. Gay political activism and a sort of stream of consciousness, which together permeates his 1990 film, The Garden. Jarman uses his own garden as sacred space to explore the parallels between the persecution of Christ and his followers to LGBT people at the height of the AIDS crisis and oppression from Thatcherism. The other film, one of the other films, there's two more I'm going to talk really briefly about The Angelic. Conversation is the next film, um, and this one just absolutely blew me away. Super, super experimental, um, but absolutely gorgeous, and I feel like it really is accessible for a lot of people. The Angelic Conversation is like Jarman's other film, devoid of narrative. Judy Dench reads 14 Shakespeare sonnets in voiceover to images of two young male lovers finding each other. There is a long period of searching. The kiss doesn't come until the 56-minute mark, but it's worth it. It's one of the best male kiss scenes I've ever seen. So much tenderness, passion, and hope for a future together. So long and lingering. It's not about what may happen next. The kiss is the main event. Uh, Just really incredible. Incredible movie. And then the final one is his final film. Derek Jarman in 1993 produced his final film, which was called Blue, just one word, the color blue. Blue is the most experimental and autobiographical of all of Jarman's films. The entire movie is one continuous blue screen, literally. There's nothing on the screen except the color blue. On my television, that meant a sort of periwinkle night sky with flashes of light like stars in the night. Blue chronicles Jarman's journey with CMV retinitis, a disease causing blindness Due to HIV, it's taken me 22. Well, this was back when I watched it for the first time. It's taken me 22 years to muster the courage to watch Blue. For years, I felt too close to home. My own HIV chronically marching on. As Jarman chose to extinguish his life a year after he completed Blue, I was afraid it would be too much. And after viewing, or should I say, listening and watching the Blue screen tonight, I'm glad I waited. Blue takes us on a journey through Jarman's hospital visits, experiences losing his sight. Losing his friends to AIDS, his own mortality, and poetic musings on life, color, and art. Joining Jarman are Nigel Terry, Tilda Swinton, and John Quentin, reading from Jarman's journals and writings, supported by a gorgeous soundtrack by Simon Fisher-Turner and Brian Eno. Blue is a love poem to Jarman's final year on Earth, a mashup of all things that made up his life and death. At times disturbing, jarring, and lyrical, Blue feels like a radio show from the future. I'm going to stop there. I got to tell you, if you've never heard of Derek Jarman, definitely I would start with Edward II. I think it's one of the most easiest films to sort of sink your teeth into. There are so many other films that I have yet to see of his that I need to see. So there's definitely to do to watch films of Derek Jarman on my list as well. But I do think Edward II is so important to watch. To know that we have faced demons before, we've faced faced bad people before, and we've persevered, and the world has been become better because of it. And we will get through this time period; we absolutely will. We all might have to stand up and start doing a lot more. Um, Friday Friday night of this week, I went to see Chastan Booty Judge's author talk about his book that's been converted to a YA book for teenagers. And Harvey Firestein, and one of the things that he said towards the end, uh, or maybe Chastin said it, I'm not sure now, but someone said, it's not okay just to be an ally anymore. You have to be an active ally. So all of the people out there that are not a part of the LGBTQ community, but that support the LGBT community, it's time to stop saying, okay, I get it. I appreciate it. I love these people. They're my neighbors. They're my coworkers. They're people in my family. I love them. You've got to get step out of your comfort zone and really start to do some things, whatever that means for you personally. It may mean calling your congressman. It may be voting, um, making sure that you vote for the right people. It may be donating money to organizations. It may be getting out in the streets and protesting whatever you need to do, just make it active. So that's sort of my my closing comment for this for this year. I hope that you um, got something out of it. I am I am so honored and thrilled that I was able to bring Derek Jarman's Edward II to Real Charlie Speaks. We have so many more things to talk about over the course of the next couple months. I send all of you so much love and lots of rainbows because it's June in 2023. Um, so I love you all. Take good care of each other, and I will see you next month. This is Philip Barr for Real Charlie Speaks. Bye-bye.